You're listening to the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast, where we bring our authentic selves, refuse to raise grown folks, and share wisdom you can use. With your host, Charles K. Poole. Good day, good people, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm excited about the episode because I get to have a conversation with someone about a profession that is woefully misunderstood and therefore a chance to shed light on how the profession helps people when practiced by those who care. Now, what profession am I speaking of? Well, the legal profession, of course. Now, before you go and let your assumptions or what you think you know cloud your perspective, consider that this misunderstanding has existed for quite a while. Hell, lawyers have been given a bad rep as far back as when Dick the Butcher in Shakespeare's Henry VI said, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. But while he was speaking of corrupt, unethical lawyers, folks over the centuries have just taken the thought and run with it, applying it to all lawyers. That's something we're going to correct today. And my guest is up for it and is living proof that we need to correct our assumptions. Let me tell you a bit about him. Matthew Jacober is a leading litigator and partner in the Lathrop GPM's Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group, where he works with clients to help them realize their dreams while protecting their assets. This means he represents clients in class action defenses, fiduciary litigation, shareholder disputes for closely held corporations, government investigations, and a whole host of other proceedings. He's also a Missouri court-approved mediator, which I take to mean he's commonly got common sense and has an understanding of practicality as one of his calling cards. Now, that's a lot of legal stuff and procedural stuff to think about, right? But here's where the game changes. Matt also provides pro bono services. For those who don't know what that means, it means free to aid wrongfully convicted men and women. In fact, Matt and a team at his firm, along with the Midwest Innocence Project, recently helped free Lamar Johnson, who spent 28 years wrongly in prison for a 1994 murder he did not commit. The case brought to light glaring errors from Johnson's 1995 trial, including false witness testimony and investigator conduct. He, the firm, and again, the Midwest Innocence Project also helped free Laquanda Faye Jacobs, who'd spent 26 years in prison for a murder she didn't commit. And Matt's continuing to engage in that work every day. So, kill all the lawyers? I don't think so. Let's get into it and find out more. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Charles. Great to be here. You know, I came across your post on LinkedIn, and I jumped on it because though you and I have not been in each other's physical presence for some time, I have always had fond memories of you once when you helped me out with an issue. And just because when you married someone that I knew at the time, didn't know you, but I've gotten to know you over the year and just have an appreciation for what you've done. So that's how we got together. That's right. And I appreciate you you inviting me this morning. Well, you know, it's not everybody who gets to seat at the table, (laughs) but you're certainly welcome. And I wanted to talk with you because the work that you do, a lot of people may not understand. I, in my lead-in, spoke about the fact that as far back as Shakespeare, there was talk about kill all the lawyers. But there's not that necessity because people don't understand the profession. So let's begin with an idea of there is this goal that people think is only focused on by lawyers that says, I'm in this to only make the big bucks, you know, work within the system, and that's it. What is it about being a lawyer from your perspective, excuse me, that made you want to do this as a profession, and what was your understanding of what being a lawyer meant? Well, I, I'll, I'll answer your question, but I want yeah. to go go back first to the Shakespeare yeah, please. comment. Because in context, if you that's from uh, Henry VIII, from the Shakespeare play, and the people who are doing that are people who are 
anti-government, exactly. anti-intellectual, anti-establishment. They're trying to overthrow the government. Mm -hmm. And when you read that in the context of the entire play, that's a great quote that gets pulled out and used all the time. Um, but when you read it in context, right. what they're saying is the only way we're going to do this right. is if we get rid of the lawyers. Exactly. The only way we're going to be able to overthrow the government and have chaos and anarchy mm -hmm. is if we get rid of the lawyers. Because mm -hmm. the lawyers are the rule makers mm -hmm. and the rule followers and the rule understanders. That's right. That's I don't know right. if that's a word. but Close enough. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I always laugh at that quote because I think it just shows exactly how important lawyers are to a civilized society. Right, right. Chaos would be great uh, if we want to live that way, but I don't think any of us do. Well, you know, people only take a portion of anything yes. and turn it into a whole movement. People take the Bible and say, you know, the thing about money, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. People always say it's money that's the root of all evil. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So going going back to your question, yeah. and I, I think I remember it most most of it anyway. Um, you know, it's I've had this. I've wanted to be a lawyer for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. uh, and my when I was growing up, uh, I grew up across the river in Illinois in a small town uh, called Highland. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mom and dad owned. My mom was a nurse, uh, and my my mom and dad together owned small businesses. Uh, for a lot of my childhood, my dad owned uh, a car repair shop. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a mechanic. Uh, and when I was in junior high, I guess, uh, he sold that, tore the business down, and he built a Bonanza restaurant. And then I he, remember Bonanza. Yeah, yeah. You know, the salad bar right. and steaks and everything. Uh, and he proceeded to have four or five of those, and then he managed a couple other ones. Um, and I always had memories <clears throat> when my dad stopped being a mechanic and he, he switched, completely switched what he was doing. And then as I continued to grow up, of him always, if he, if he and my mom uh, turning to the family lawyer, when they had to make big decisions. And that, to me, you know, when you're a kid, you, you've got your parents and they're the people that you trust to take care of you, that you trust are going to be there, and you just trust their judgment. At least I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mom and dad were great, great. My dad's passed away. My mom's still alive and lives in Highland. Um, and it, it always struck me that these people who you think have got it all together, they're turning to somebody who's not at the dinner table, who's not in the family, to help them make these important decisions. And my dad, every now and then, I would actually get to go to a meeting with the lawyer, and I was struck by uh, how the, the lawyer who my dad used was able to break down a problem and help find the right solution in a pretty short amount of time. I just thought that's really what I want to do for people. Mm -hmm. I want to be there to help people fix their problems. My dad fixed problems in a different way, but I wanted to be there to fix problems for people. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where my wanting to be a lawyer came from. Um, and then, you know, you, you get your education, of course. Uh, so you go to college and you learn more about the system. You learn more about the world. Uh, and that's probably when my my strong desire to do pro bono work and to help other people with, with my education and my law license kind of formed. Mm -hmm. So you've always, from the start, thought of it as a helping profession. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, uh, I have friends now. Uh, I have a son who's 19. Um, and so I have friends, contemporaries, whose kids are in that college age. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to look at different things right. that they want to mm -hmm. that they want to do uh so the all of my friends whose kids want to go to law school mm -hmm. they always ask me to sit down with their son or daughter and kind of talk to them tell them what it's about and and what the career is like what law school is like all of that stuff just to help especially if they're not lawyers uh, and my first question is always why do you want to go to law school mm -hmm. uh and when most of the kids do say because they like to help people. Mm. 
I think that's a common theme among lawyers. Uh, the ones who don't, that <laughs> want to do it because they think it's intellectually challenging. It is. Mm -hmm. Or that you can make good money. Mm -hmm. You can, but you can also be a lawyer and mm -hmm. not make any right. money at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but the ones who don't say it's to help people, I usually, I always challenge them and say, you better think long and hard mm -hmm. if that's what you think you're going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Because if you think that you're going to get the level of satisfaction you need to do a job as hard as being a lawyer for the rest of your adult life because you're going to make some money uh, or it's intellectually stimulating, you're going to be a very unhappy person and a very unhappy lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't get that, that innate satisfaction from helping other people, it's the wrong profession. So in addition to that, because I can totally relate <laughs> to it because I have worked with a lot of people in the profession, corporate, you know, and I worked in, you know, local government for a while, so you know about that. But socially, as you look at the perception, of this profession, what would you say, and this only has to be your opinion, what is the biggest misconception about the profession? Hmm. Take a moment. I think the biggest misconception is that lawyers are dishonest. Mm. Uh, I don't find lawyers to be dishonest. And what I find with what what, what I think lawyers are, they're advocates. And advocates are hired by a person, a client, to advocate for them, to tell their story, mm -hmm. to negotiate their contract, mm -hmm. to fix their problem. Mm -hmm. And part of doing that, a, a significant part of doing that, first you gotta identify what it is, right. what the problem is and what you're trying to solve, uh, and what your goal is. And then you have to figure out how you get from problem to goal uh, within the law. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that's kind of the, a very simple, basic way that you look mm -hmm. at it. And I think people frequently think that an advocate who starts with a problem, understands the law, and has a solution, and has to tell a story to get to that solution is being dishonest. Mm -hmm. But we all know that every story has multiple layers and has multiple issues inside of it. And how you tell that story is how the world perceives it. And that's in large, in particular for trial lawyers. That's what trial lawyers do. They tell a story in the way that you want someone else to hear it, mm -hmm. which is really what we all do mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. um, but people think that that is a lawyer being dishonest or being untruthful. Right. And I don't believe that's being dishonest or untruthful. That's just advocating for someone. Mm -hmm. That is telling a story in a way that advances someone's interests. Mm -hmm. There's a parallel here. I'm a public relations person. Your wife is a public relations yep. person. Can I relate? Absolutely. Spin doctors, we're called, right? Always lying, always adjusting the truth not true. So I totally get that. So when you're dealing with that type of animus <laughs> to begin with, how do you go about finding ways to represent a reality that is different than most people have come to believe? Uh, well, you, you back it up with facts. Mm -hmm. You explain. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't just rely on well, this is what it was. Mm -hmm. um, so if, you know, very simple, uh, if, if you're representing someone in a, a criminal case and that person is accused of doing, uh, committing a crime, uh, you, of course, don't rely on just that person's account. You develop evidence. Mm -hmm. You get other accounts and, and you begin to show that there are multiple other perspectives of what allegedly happened mm -hmm. and that what your client says what happens is more likely true mm -hmm. than what the government says happens mm -hmm. if they're accusing them of a crime. Right. And so you, you have to put the story together mm -hmm. and you have to you develop credible evidence, mm -hmm. people that are believable, people mm -hmm. that uh, a judge or a jury would say, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I understand that now. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, going back to you, every story has a different side to it. Right. Not just does every story have a different side, but every person 
who hears a story hears different parts of that Absolutely. story. Absolutely. And different parts click into people's right. heads in mm -hmm. different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's critically important uh, to, to understand mm -hmm. when you're communicating, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know that. Mm -hmm. uh, different people hear different things. Mm -hmm. Different things are important to different people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, to me, I think that's really what it boils down to is you, you have to, you can't just think that people are going to believe because they don't and they shouldn't. Uh, you have to develop the story in a way that you have backup for it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me to hear this. I am loving this description. And it's a perspective I don't know that I had before now, but I've always felt in terms of what I do for a living that more often than not, I'm a behavioralist. Legal work requires understanding behavior, understanding people. And that's something that I don't think that often is understood. When you hear you know, these stories. By the way, forgive me, but yes, I am a huge fan of all of the Law and Order franchise. They're good. I like oh my them God. Too. <laughs> I I learned so much from watching them. But when you have these people who are reading juries and this type of thing, it's understanding exactly what you're saying in that context that everybody's going to interpret data, facts, information differently, and understanding how to somehow take that and still maintain the narrative that is beneficial to your defense, your client, whatever the case may be. And when you're looking at something like that, the amount of time that goes into it is a lot of time, right? It's a tremendous amount of time. Because when you're preparing for trial, you're not just sitting there shuffling papers and saying, okay, let's go. You've got all of this information to digest, and then you have to understand how to present it to people in light of what you just said, correct? Correct. Okay. And, and you have to be prepared for every possible mm -hmm. scenario, mm -hmm. every eventuality that may or may not happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you have to have your, because people do it all the time. They get up on the stand and they change their story. Mm -hmm. So you have to be prepared. You that, mean people lie? <laughs> really? They, they remember things differently. Yeah. Is that how we're saying? Okay. You're the PR guy right now. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, I personally can say, let me just go ahead and be the person that puts myself out on the street and say, I mean, I love lawyers. <laughs> I work with a lot of them in different fields and different practice areas. And it boggles my mind as much as I do it for a living to hear the things that they have to contend with. So first of all, let me just be transparent in that. So I want to say also, Matt, that, you know, when we're looking at this issue of the law and how it's understood, we're living at a time in our country where Lots of legal things have been happening that have caused duress for a lot of people. And I wanted to just ask you here, just because I can, you know, not that you have to come down on any side of anything from a partisan point of view, but look at some of the things that were considered settled law. And then we come back and we revisit it. And then it's different. And people say that it's justice being blind. And people say, is it really though? <laughs> How do you respond to that? Yeah, and I'm uh, I, assuming you're ref referencing the recent mm. affirmative action yeah. ruling, uh, the the Supreme Court mm -hmm. uh, changing changing course on Roe v. Wade. Right. Um, yeah, there 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 have been there have been some huge changes of uh, courts in in the not too distant past. Uh, you know, in fifties and sixties, right. and here we're in twenty twenty three. So not that long ago. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, cases get before the court in different ways. Mm -hmm. And fact scenarios get before courts in different ways. And courts change. Uh, I think when people walk into the election booth, they don't necessarily consider that part of voting on their senators, their congresspeople, uh, and the presidential candidates, mm -hmm. because those those votes together can have significant, long-lasting impact mm -hmm. on our society. Mm -hmm. Not because of the policies made in Congress or in the White House, mm -hmm. but because of the White House's ability to select federal court judges, who incidentally are appointed for life, mm -hmm. uh, and the Senate's ability to approve them. Right. Uh, so. 
I'll I'll be honest. I haven't had. I've been in trial last week. I haven't had the chance. <laughs> You've been kind to, of busy. Yeah, yeah, I haven't even had the chance to look at the right. affirmative action decision. So I don't know what the fact scenario was that right. got that mm-hmm. in front of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it they are sea changes that it, it appears to be a sea change. Um, but but then I've read I've read just very briefly some some news articles where maybe it's a little bit more limited than what absolutely than what the press has led mm-hmm. us to believe. Of course, uh, but it, like I said, I haven't. I think the decision is 140 pages long, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, it's going to be a you little. You haven't bit read it, right? I get that. <laughs> I right. haven't read it, right? Right. Um, so it's, but it those kinds of changes. Um, are bound to happen when uh, when people don't think through mm-hmm. their choice at the ballot box, mm-hmm. right? And in, in, in good or bad, right? Right. Good or bad for one part of our population right. or another. And unfortunately, in our country right now, I I believe that while you know race has been a country uh, an issue in America for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. we can't. Anyone who says it wasn't is not living in reality. Right. Or says it is and isn't mm-hmm. living in reality. Um, and I think it's it's an odd, at least my observation, as if you're just listening, I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a white man. Um, as a white man in America, I think th- in large part the interpersonal relationship, the ability for people to look past race mm-hmm. on a person-to-person mm-hmm. perspective, I think is better mm-hmm. than it's been mm-hmm. in in my memory of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But we have societal issues that are much bigger than that, that are, it seems like it's backpedaling mm-hmm. from that progress that has been made mm-hmm. and is making, is trying to push things into a worse way. Mm. And... I think recent elections have that that is a that is a goal right, of right. of some recent elections. Mm-hmm. And what we're not going to do is turn this into a political issue. I'm trying to stay away I know. from it. You're, you're a very very astute man, and that's not what we do here anyway. But what we are aware of is you know the fact that across the board, so many different areas, that effort to turn back the clock to a different time is certainly afoot. And I wonder when people are doing things, if it's just the fact that often because it hasn't happened to them yet where they're affected in some way, they can turn away from the fact that it's happening for others. I mean, you know, we talk about race, we've talked about gender, we talked about sexual preference, all of these things where people are saying, okay, we had laws that said this was how we're going to go forward, but now, maybe not. We're going to backpedal a little bit, and we're going to return us all to a time where that wasn't the case. And it gets to the question, if you are the average reasonable person, I think, where you're saying, wait a minute, we're always hearing about justice. Is there any such thing as real justice, particularly based upon who you are and how you are in the world? And that's how I want to transition into the work that you've done involving people who have ended up in jail for crimes they did not commit, often heinous crimes, and they end up in jail for a long period of time. And we'll talk about the individual cases. And eventually, through efforts, they're freed. And when you find out what wasn't done, allegedly in the justice system, it's shocking. Talk to me about that and how you got involved on a pro bono basis. And y'all, let me just say, again, I said in the intro, I'll say it again, pro bono means free, <laughs> just in case you don't know. On a pro bono basis, to reach back and help people who have been found to be in that position. How did you get involved? Why? And what drives you to continue that still? It's not like you've done one or two. You keep doing this. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so there is a uh, there is a quote from, and now I, I'm not going to remember the name. Sorry. Right. Uh, Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from a, a very famous Supreme Court case, U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, that it's it's better for 
one mm. innocent man to go free than it is for a hundred. Wait, now I'm screwing it up. <laughs> I I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, but basic. So basically, I, when 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 I was in law school, mm-hmm. you you take different classes and you t- take criminal procedure as one mm-hmm. of them, and you take criminal law, uh, largely for uh, bar exam preparation. And the, you know, the, the concept is our system of justice doesn't work if we have innocent people sitting in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how I got involved and and I firmly believe that I Mm -hmm. firmly believe that, that, you know, it could, it could be any one of us at any time that could be falsely accused. Mm-hmm. Um, so my firm has had a relationship with a organization called the Midwest Innocence Project, right. which is headquartered out of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And they're part of the Innocence Network, which mm-hmm. is a nationwide network of innocence projects. They all have different names mm-hmm. um, that work on these issues. And the Innocence Network is has a lot of lobbying functions, PR functions, mm-hmm. research functions, um, and then the individual innocence projects work on cases. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've had a relationship with them for a long time. And we had a group of lawyers who were working on a case down in Arkansas with them. Uh, the client's name was Laconda Faye Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she was 16 years old, she was accused and uh, convicted ultimately of murder in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And it was clear that not only did Faye not do it, but Faye didn't get a fair trial. Mm. Uh, Faye's, the the record is, is incredibly short, shockingly short. And she went through two lawyers because one lawyer got disbarred and there was evidence of her second lawyer being intoxicated wow. every afternoon at trial. Uh, evidence that should have gotten in, that shouldn't have gotten in, got into the trial and then vice versa. Her lawyer did not even do remotely a competent job. But because Faye was a 16-year-old black woman in Arkansas, she could only get a public defender. And her family did not have the resources necessary to really help her after her trial. And basically, her, all of her options ran out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were working on habeas corpus proceedings in Arkansas. Uh, and I got involved in negotiating with the prosecutor. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get Faye exonerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she was presented with a very difficult choice. There's a line of Supreme Court cases that started when the Supreme Court said, we as a society are not going to imprison mentally incompetent people, mentally retarded people. I know that's not, yeah. that's the language in the case. Right, exactly. That's not the, the proper, prop, but that's how the Supreme Court defined it. Right. People for life in prison. Mm-hmm. That is just, we're not going to do that. Gotcha. Um, and then the, the Supreme Court eventually extended that to juveniles who were convicted of life in prison. We're not going to do that to kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to sentence them, but they are going to have a chance to get out. So, and then eventually the Supreme Court had to tell the states, hey, we weren't kidding. <laughs> we mean this. you right? got to do this. Mm-hmm. So while we're working on the habeas corpus matter, we're also working on a resentencing uh, for Faye and kind of at a at a critical uh, juncture in the case when the habeas corpus matter was really going to was picking up some steam we were able to engage in negotiations with the prosecutor and get her released on time served gotcha and her family situation at the time uh, her mom and dad were elderly and had health issues Mm -hmm. and she needed to be home to Mm -hmm. help um, she did, she had to make a really hard choice. Mm. Do you want to stay in and risk never getting out? Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you want to get out now? Mm-hmm. And I think she made the choice that any of us would have made. She said, get me out of here now. Uh, and she is a wonderful human being. Uh, 
And so I, I had helped on some cases before then, just really doing more research and um, analysis. But then I, once I, once I helped Faye, mm. I was hooked. Interesting. I, I was hooked. Okay. Once you sit down with, you know, what, what has struck me, I've met a lot of exonerated people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I, I was trying to put myself in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if I were wrongfully convicted and were sitting in prison, that would be a very angry, mm-hmm. uh, bitter, unhappy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a person, every wrongfully incarcerated person I've met is the exact opposite. Mm. They've got this almost inner peace mm. that I know I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm here in a really bad situation. I'm surrounded, for the most part, by mm-hmm. bad people mm-hmm. uh, who I'm not really comfortable around because I myself am not a bad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow. I think, you know, there, there are mm-hmm. there are people who should be in prison. <laughs> there, yeah. there, there certainly are. Can we start in D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a political podcast, Charles. It's not. It's just a question. <laughs> uh, so, so, but to a person, they've just got this inner peace and this um, calmness right. of... It's going to work out. Mm-hmm. It's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And they trust. Even though I don't think I could trust if I were in their shoes. And I tell mm-hmm. them that all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one, I got to know Faye. And then I've spent time with her afterwards. And just absolutely hooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, whenever uh, the executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project is this incredible lawyer, Trisha Rojo, Rojo Bushnell. Okay. Um, she is just incredibly smart, passionate. She got enough passion for the world. Awesome. Um, and shout out she, to Trisha. She's in, <laughs> in, just an incredible person, mm-hmm. incredible lawyer, incredible person. When she calls, mm-hmm. I say yes. Mm. Uh, so that the Lamar Johnson case that concluded on uh, Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. 2023, uh, when Lamar walked out of uh, St. Louis City Courthouse, um, she called me on that back in, I want to say 2018, uh, kind of in a panic because they had a hearing coming up mm-hmm. in the city of St. Louis, uh, and she wanted somebody local, mm-hmm. um, who could help her with it. And I, you know, said, yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ran conflicts real fast and, and got involved and then worked on Lamar's case. Uh, through all of the ups and downs that we had. Uh, he didn't have any, his options were limited because of uh, the time and, and the different challenges that had been made to his sentence uh, throughout the years. Um, but thankfully, the M- Missouri legislature, even though he didn't have a good pathway, the Missouri legislature said, we got to fix this. Mm-hmm. If a prosecutor is saying someone that my office prosecuted is innocent, We've got to give prosecutors a way to fix that mm-hmm. because we as a state do not want people sitting in prison mm-hmm. when a prosecutor says mm-hmm. they shouldn't be sitting in prison. Uh, so they passed legislation uh, which allowed the prosecutor to actually bring that case, and that culminated in Lamar walking out of prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, there's just – there's not a better feeling as a lawyer mm-hmm. to walk out of a, walk out of a courthouse uh, – and I've won a lot. I've lost a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but walking out with someone who mm-hmm. spent 28 years mm-hmm. locked up and watching them breathe free air mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. I, you can't replace that. What has that meant to you in terms of your perspective about humanity? You had mentioned earlier about the calmness and the sense of peace that seems to be normal for these folks under circumstances that you don't think you could handle, but... My experience, Matt, has been that we don't know what we can handle until we're forced to handle it, right? I think that's very true. Right? So we say that, but we probably would. But when you're looking at that, that walking out and this person is free, and as you describe, breathing air for the first time that's free in years, what does that do to reinforce or to elevate your perspective about what it means to be a human who can help other humans 
have a better life? Well, there's no better reward. Mm. I mean, they're, they're uh, making money and having things mm-hmm. is great. Right. Uh, being able to take a nice vacation or go to a nice meal with, with your family or your friends, is those are all great. Mm-hmm. But being able to use the skills that you were given mm. and the education that you gained to help other people, mm-hmm. there's there's just not a better reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm fortunate I'm at a law firm that allows me to balance the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're very pro, pro bono. Mm-hmm. Uh, we care about it a lot mm-hmm. and we, we devote a lot of resources to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do it, you know, we do it in the innocence cases. Uh, and then we have a significantly big office in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And Minnesota has a lot of um, asylum seekers who live there. So the while we have some lawyers who work on instance cases up there, the majority of our lawyers up there are doing asylum cases. Gotcha. So we, and we we chose those areas purposefully because they they blend together mm-hmm. very well. They're very similar in nature. Uh, and they're impactful in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you truly are helping an individual change their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have other lawyers who do other pro bono things, and everybody can pick their own whatever ignites their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those areas of pro bono work are ones where you are truly impacting an individual's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think we take for granted a lot of things that happen in life. Right. Freedom is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the, the the things that we take for granted, I think, are so incredibly simple. But if you think about them, if you go through a day and you consciously think about some things, like you can eat whenever you want to. Right. To a large extent, mm-hmm. you can eat whatever you want to. Mm-hmm. You can take a nap in the middle of the afternoon if you want to. Mm -hmm. You can go work out whenever you Mm -hmm. want to. You can turn off the lights at the end of the day whenever you want to. Right. Uh, Now, most of us got to get up in the morning and go to work. Uh, But so that maybe ends there. But, you know, those very fundamental simple freedoms Mm -hmm. are things you don't have when you're in prison. Absolutely. You don't get to turn off. That that, that to me, and maybe it's because I'm a night owl, that to me is the biggest one. Mm-hmm. You don't get to turn the lights off when you want to when you're right. in prison. Right. You go to bed when they tell you to. <laughs> yeah. You get up when they tell you to. Mm-hmm. You eat what they tell you to eat when they tell you to eat. Mm-hmm. You go outside when they tell you you can go outside. Mm-hmm. You come inside when they tell you. Mm-hmm. All of these things um, that if you took those away from a person, I, I don't think people understand what taking those away exactly. from themselves would do. To your psyche mm-hmm. and to who you are as a as a human being, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to get that back for somebody mm-hmm. is just life altering, right. as far as I can yeah. tell. And you know, I do think that we have somewhat of a you know sensibility about what we could expect for humans, because look how humans behave under the pandemic rules. <laughs> Wearing a mask, you've got to wear a mask. You need to stay. What do humans do? They lost their shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think we have a bit of an idea of what people would normally do. So it even reinforces, again, the fact that these people who have been in there all this time, knowing that they are um, uh, innocent of these crimes, and yet they can be very zen and very peaceful and very hopeful about things. That, I think, that people would have to lean into a little bit more. But it's very easy for people to lose their minds over being told what to do at any given point in their life. Well, I think that is... If you can define what makes America, mm-hmm. that's probably it, right? Yeah, there. we none of us mm-hmm. <laughs> like being told what to do. Exactly, ever. exactly. <laughs> that, that that is the that is the very nature of the American soul. Right, that is it. And I'm like, I've always worked very hard from the time that I was a kid to stay on the right side of the law because I know I would not survive in jail. For a lot of reasons. Plus, I used to watch a lot of episodes of Oz, and that's another story. So <laughs> yeah. I won't go into all of that. That, that makes you just terrified <laughs> oh, of people in yeah. general. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Uh, Matt, talk to me about this. You know, obviously, you said earlier, I'm a white man. You know, of course, you know, you go to 
you know, find your roots, who knows? You may be like Joe Manganiello and find something else you didn't know. So it's possible. But all of that said, and all kidding aside, as you've looked at these cases, and I came across a University of Michigan study from 22 called Race and Wrongful Convictions in the U.S. And there's a huge issue in terms of race in that regard. Obviously, anybody can be wrongly accused. You've said as much, and we all realize that. But as you look at the fact that predominantly this tends to fall within certain racial groups, how do you perceive that in terms of your approach to helping people in a large, more macro scale, given the fact that there seems to be this preponderance where this group of people seems to be hit by these wrongful convictions more than any other? Yeah, I mean, that's, is there a, is there a fix for the problem, I mm -hmm. think is your question. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know. It, 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 yeah. it, it's such a multi-layered problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there is a fix. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it starts like a lot of things do with education, with um, a, a better, edu you know, a lot of times what happens, what, what I've seen when I start looking at files is um, there, there is a, there is a greater tendency or mm -hmm. A more likely uh, that a young black man who's arrested is going to sit down and talk to the police mm -hmm. instead of saying, I'm not talking to you. Mm -hmm. I want a lawyer. Right. Um, and there is a, unfortunately, a greater tendency, and public defenders are great, mm -hmm. but my God, are they overworked. Yeah. There's no way... There's no way a public defender, no matter how talented of a lawyer they are, with the caseloads they are required to carry, that they can do the same level of job as a outside paid attorney can mm -hmm. do who has a, a fraction of those cases mm -hmm. and has support staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of public defenders, they're not just trying their case. They're mm -hmm. their private investigator. They're their paralegal. Mm -hmm. They're serving subpoenas. Mm -hmm. They're interviewing witnesses. They're doing everything right. by themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, and on the flip side, the prosecutor has got all those things. Mm -hmm. They have mm -hmm. uh, an entire police force at their disposal. They right. have investigators. Mm -hmm. They have paralegals. They have support staff. So the, the table is not flat, mm -hmm. first of all, when you have a public defender versus uh, a prosecutor. So I, I, and that's that's a hard problem to fix. Right. Uh, that requires money. Yes. A lot of money mm -hmm. from the government. And uh, but but education would be a, a place to start. And education in those communities that you should not talk to the police mm -hmm. until you're represented because they're not your friends. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't know is there is a lot of Supreme Court case law. That while you and I, if we get arrested, mm -hmm. if we lie to the police, mm -hmm. we get charged with another crime of obstruction of justice. Right. right. The police lie to us; mm -hmm. they get a conviction. Of course. Uh, and th so the tables aren't level. Mm -hmm. uh, and if people understood that when they went in to talk to the police, they would know not to ever go in mm -hmm. without somebody watching their back. Right. Right. Uh, and so. That education, I think, would, would help a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think education from a broader sense of, uh, of, of police on, and I think it's getting better, but a lot, like Lamar's case is a perfect example. And, and by the way, a shout out to Lamar. Mm, absolutely. That, that man is, he has got Zen mm. down to a, an mm -hmm. art form. Uh, he is, he just, he's one of the kindest and most gentle people I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, but in Lamar's case, it, it was, when you look at the facts, it was very clear what was happening was, if you remember the early to mid nineties and not just in St. Louis, every major city, it was the crack wars. Mm -hmm. And there was a, uh, there was a lot of drugs, and there were a lot of guns, mm. and a, a tremendous amount of violence. And police were desperate to clean the streets up. Mm -hmm. And instead of focusing on 
solving crimes, they were focused on getting people off the streets. Mm -hmm. And if you got identified as someone who was a problem, uh, sooner or later, you were going to get off the streets. That's right. Whether you did something or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if there's a greater education of the police that, you know, that's not the way things Mm -hmm. should be done, Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be a a next big step mm-hmm. towards fixing that problem. Yeah. And I, I, I'm going to quote some data here from that University of Michigan study that said, you know, while black people are 13.6% of the American population, they rep, roughly represent 53% of the 3,200 exonerations listed in the National Registry of Exonerations. And that judging from those innocent black Americans are seven times more likely than white Americans to be falsely convicted of crimes. Now, while we see this racial disparity in varying degrees for all major crime categories except white-collar crime, this report examines racial disparities in three types of crime that produce the largest numbers of exonerations, excuse me, murder, sexual assault, and drug crimes. Is that your finding? I'm, that's consistent with what I've seen. Yeah. I was just at uh, a, a, uh, the network of uh, the Innocence Network convention in mm-hmm. Arizona a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a great event. They have, for lawyers, it's great. They have a lot of CLEs that mm-hmm. are very... Uh, innocence-focused. Uh, Tell people what CLE is. Uh, continuing legal education. It's our gotcha. requirement to, to stay educated mm-hmm. as we go forward. Um, and great networking opportunity. But what what's really impactful about it is mm-hmm. exonerees come there. Mm. And they're at the conference. They're walking around. They have their families with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this event on the last night where they're all announced Mm -hmm. and it is it's 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 just a stunning because when you start to see person after person after person 20 years Mm -hmm. 25 years Mm -hmm. 15 years Mm -hmm. 18 you're just these huge chunks of time Mm -hmm. uh and uh, lamar's my most recent Mm -hmm. and and lamar's also of my age basically Mm -hmm. i'm I'm 51, Lamar's 49 or 50. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, and, and I grew up not too far away. From, we grew up not too far away from each other. Distinctly different lives. Very different lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, you know, I, I I can relate to him because we grew up in such a same time. Mm-hmm. But when I sit and think about what happened in my life, from he was 19 when he went into prison from the time i was 19 to mm. when lamar walked down versus what happened in his right, life right right uh he was in prison and watched two of his kids grow up mm. from behind prison walls i went to college got a law degree got married had a mm. son mm. had a great career and had this great life and all that in that 28 years mm. half of a life mm-hmm. uh when you're 50 uh, just taken away. Mm. Uh, and, and so when I was at the innocence conference, yeah, it's profound. Mm. Uh, the, the makeup of, of everyone there, Mm -hmm. uh, of, of the exonerees, Mm -hmm. uh, it is largely, uh, black or brown people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I, I don't know if your statistics reflect, you're talking black Americans. I'm not sure if it reflects Hispanic Americans yeah. as well. Yeah, and there's a separate uh, slice of that pie for that. But yeah, they're talking about disproportionately what is now collectively said to be black and brown people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, what's concerning to me is I think wrong, wrongful convictions are bad for individuals, mm-hmm. clearly. Uh, you know, they destroy lives, right. destroy families' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can't imagine having to go visit a loved one who's in prison mm-hmm. that belongs there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine how hard that is. But I think it would be so significantly harder mm-hmm. if you are going to visit someone who shouldn't be there mm-hmm. and then having to leave mm-hmm. and leave them there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is 
probably destructive yeah. to family relationships mm-hmm. and to families. Um, but it's also bad for the system mm-hmm. because it, it no system is perfect. Right. And I do believe that our system of justice in America is probably the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. We can make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and wrongful convictions undermine the system. Mm-hmm. Has this helped you to understand in a different way where people who tend to be in the system more so than others believe there is no justice, there's just us? Do you get that line? I, 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 I understand the line. Yep, yeah, I get yeah. it. And get so it. therefore, when you're hearing something like this, let's go back to when you did that first case and you knew that you were hooked, as you described it, to this point today. Tell me, Matt, when you had that experience and now you've brought it forward into all of these you know, years later, how has that impacted you as a human being? And whatever faith or religion, whatever it is that you subscribe to, what has it done to either elevate that or to diminish it if that were the case? I don't know that I wouldn't I wouldn't say it it's done either. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Okay. Um you know, I I'm Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, race Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um and my my faith and my profession have always been somewhat separate. Mm-hmm. Um and kind of intentionally so. Mm-hmm. Um because as a lawyer, again, your your job, your entire existence is to represent someone else. Mm. And I do my absolute best to leave all of my stuff behind. Mm. Uh, now, I, I won't do things that I think are unethical mm-hmm. or wrong for a client. Right. Uh, but I am, I'm their instrument, mm. kind of. And I, I want to... I I believe in order to do that right and in order to do that completely, you have to leave a lot of who you are mm-hmm. to the side and be that what that person needs. Mm-hmm. Be the, the advocate that that individual or that company needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've always tried to keep those two things separate in my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as justice goes, like I said, I think our system is the best that there is, mm-hmm. but it has flaws, like mm-hmm. any system does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way we're going to get to having a true system of justice is if we continue to acknowledge mm-hmm. that it's not perfect. Right. And we continue to work towards getting it as close to per- And nothing's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, get it as close to perfect as mm-hmm. we can. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that uh, is to work on policing strategies and engagement strategies and and all of those things that are Mm pre-conviction and then have systems in place for when there are wrongful convictions Mm -hmm. to get those people freed Mm -hmm. and and quite frankly to get them compensation Mm -hmm. and to help get their lives back to where they ought to have been Mm -hmm. Uh, so people aren't you know wrongfully convicted and, and relying on others, which is what largely it is right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Missouri doesn't have much of a compensation system. The legislature's working on it, so mm-hmm. there, I, I think there's some recognition that we got some way to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but get those people back to, you know, get them training. It's So when Lamar walked out of prison, um, he was exonerated, mm-hmm. and he was no longer a convicted criminal. Um, which meant that he was completely released from Missouri, Missouri Department of Prisons, mm-hmm. which meant he wasn't a, uh, eligible for any post-release programs, mm-hmm. job programs, uh, assistance with insurance, uh, housing assistance, any of those things. Mm-hmm. Just buy. Mm-hmm. Here's your stuff in right. a box. It's like being penalized all over again. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he had served a sentence and been paroled, he would have been entitled to all of those things. Ah, uh, the system. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something else that the Midwest Innocence Project, another shout right. out to them. They yeah. do very well. They do a lot of that po- to, to help people, mm-hmm. to help them get reintegrated into society, which is a hard thing to do mm-hmm. when you've been 
out of society for 28 years. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the other profound thing when you think of that amount of time in our lifetime, mm-hmm. think about 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. Did you have to put a cell phone on a charger every night before you went to bed 28 right. years ago? No. Right. Right. You didn't. Right. It's like Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, 10 stations on mm-hmm. TV and mm-hmm. just... It's, 400. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right. it's it's just a, an incredible difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more the more we, as a, as a system, recognizes that there are problems mm-hmm. and those problems need to be fixed, the better we'll get to true complete justice. Mm -hmm. And I want to get back to that part. I understand that in the context of serving as the legal representative of someone, yes, you're the advocate. But in that larger sense, when you're looking at situations or you hear things on the news now, on your personal side, when you hear things and you see things, do you react differently now when you hear them than you may have before you started having these types of experiences? Or is it roughly the same in terms of waiting for more information? You're a lawyer, so I know the information's important. Yeah, it's right. always waiting for mm-hmm. more information. That that hasn't changed since probably after my first semester of mm-hmm. law school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, law that That is what law school beats into your head repeatedly Mm -hmm. and changes the way you see the world. Right. Uh, And I I worked at the city of St. Louis Police Department, even though I was doing PR. So I'm a big proponent of it's easy to be reactionary to what's going on in the world because there's some ugly crap going down. Right. But I'm still of that same school of thought. I need information because what something seems is not necessarily what it is. And we've got to, as a society, let the system in need of change and challenge as it does, still work to try to get things done, but not ignoring the fact that there are things going on where people are not necessarily always served by the justice system and questioning it and raising issues accordingly. And in that vein, as we get ready to close here, what would you like to leave with our listeners and viewers, because you can listen or view us depending on which platform you're using, what would you like to leave with them about the work of the law that still inspires you, that still makes you feel that it makes a difference, and that allows you to get up every day feeling as though you have purpose. Yeah, so something I I tell my clients, usually in the first meeting, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it 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 depends, I guess, a little bit. If it's a corporation, maybe this isn't driven home as much. Although, mm-hmm. frequently is because the I, the while I do work for large corporations, uh, my sweet spot with companies are more entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. family-owned companies because I come from a, right, that. Right. I understand that, mm-hmm. uh, and I really love working for those people because it's their passion is so evident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what I always tell people in the, when we close out that first meeting is, okay, the, I understand what the problem is now. Mm-hmm. And I understand what our goal is. Mm-hmm. And now my work is to figure out how we get from problem to goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my problem now. Mm-hmm. You've given it to me. Mm-hmm. Stop worrying about mm-hmm. it. Let me be the one who worries about it. Gotcha. And that's that, that help mentality. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, that still gets me up in the morning, mm-hmm. that being able to take that off of somebody so they can go focus on what they do best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can focus on what I do best mm-hmm. and to get from problem to solution. Mm. And that, people, is the reason, as I said at the outset of this, let's look at lawyers a lot differently. Lawyers are human, too, just in case you've forgotten. <laughs> and I want to thank you, Matt, for spending some time with us today and giving us some really personal insight into what this work means, but also all the various ways they can help people because I've known you for a long time. And I remember you were just a wee lawyer. <laughs> I'm a baby lawyer. Yeah, yeah baby lawyer. <laughs> and now you're, you know, this major lawyer who does good things with his time and makes a difference in the real lives of real people. And that is the law as I see it, and I believe still can make a difference. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. Okay, you've got it. Listen in, people, to the podcast on any podcast platform everywhere, and we'll be seeing you next episode. Take care. 
Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Pool Proof Wisdom Podcast. We always enjoy the company. Be sure to listen, like, subscribe, and share using Google and Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, YouTube, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate it very much if you simply tell a friend about the podcast too. Spread the word. Until next time, keep on living.